Did you know that in the late 1600s, a small group of ordinary people rose up against the establishment and changed society forever? The world called them pirates, but these pirates didn't just break the rules, they rewrote them. They didn't just reject society, they reinvented it. Pirate crews created equal pay, equal say, workplace compensation and even same-sex marriage. In the face of industrial-scale disruption, global conflict and an uncertain future, the pirates of the golden age weren't quite the villains that Disney would have you believe. Welcome to our Be More Pirate podcast. I'm Alex Barker. And I'm Sam Conniff. In 2018, my first book, Be More Pirate, was published by Penguin Random House. After 20 years working with young creatives, the book was an outlet for my frustrations and a quest for some new role models who could capture the spirit of rebellion I knew we so desperately need to tackle the big challenges ahead. And I found it in Pirates. The book then became something far bigger than I ever expected. Be More Pirate is now a global movement of people and organisations taking a stand to update the rules, systems and business models that are no longer fit for purpose. And I went from being Sam's right-hand pirate to leading this community and writing a second book to tell their story. So if you, like so many in our crew, find yourself dissatisfied with the status quo, then this podcast is here to give you permission to do things differently. We'll be interviewing some of the best pirates out there, people who really live their values and are willing to stick their head above the parapet for the greater good. We'll tackle some uncomfortable conversation topics and delve into what it really takes to break and rewrite the rules today. One of the compliments that I was always proudest to receive about Be More Pirate was how many strong female characters, pirate stories and role models there were in it, which was never anything intentional, but I suppose the outcome just of me being very lucky to have had so many such women in my life, from growing up with a very strong single mum right through to my business partner for 15 years in Liberty, to the hundreds of young women that I've mentored on their journey, right through to Alex Barker, my once impressive right-hand pirate, who's now the pirate captain who's taken over this whole ship. So as we embark on a new adventure, this first episode of the Be More Pirate podcast. I couldn't be more proud or pleased to welcome aboard Cressy Westling as our first guest, a woman that I probably look up to in business, social enterprise, and professional piracy more than any other. And I'm incredibly proud to have also been on this journey with Cressy for quite some time. In mid 2000 something, well, about 2007, I think we were, we were appointed social enterprise ambassadors by the then name drop worthy Ed Miliband, who was the social enterprise minister at the time. It was a couple of years after Cressy had founded Elvis and Cressy, the sustainable fashion company that rescues raw materials and turns them into luxury accessories like belts and bags, belts that are modelling as we speak. And her relationship with the London Fire Brigade specifically has drawn some of the most incredible successes because no longer does any decommissioned fire hose go to landfill whatsoever and hasn't for over a decade. And over 200 tonnes of material has been reclaimed by Elvis and Cressy since. They also partner with incredible brands like Burberry and many others, not just tackling the issues of leather waste, but many other issues and items as well. And at the same time, they donate 50% of their profits to charity. For those who've read Be More Pirate, you also know that I talk about their story in the book and I position Cressy as a pirate particularly because she really is someone who never backs down from a fight. So Cressy we haven't met before I know a bit of your story from the book of course but otherwise I'm coming at this totally fresh and I'm curious to understand a bit more about how you came to found Elvis and Cressy because in so many of the stories I've heard about people turning pirate there's often this really pivotal moment when they suddenly decided, you know, or realised what really matters to them, or they'll go through a period of turbulence to help them find that level of clarity and then decide to set a very new or different course. 
So I wanted to ask first if you'd experienced anything like that. There's definitely the long answer and the short answer here. And the long answer includes so many incidents over the course of my life that definitely led up to the final straw and putting my foot down. And you could say some of those early moments would be, you know, I grew up in Western Canada. We used to go camping almost every weekend in the wild. We saw bear and moose. And I think that, I don't know how else to say it, but it it colors your life. We also, as an elementary school, used to go on amazing field trips to see things like sewage treatment plants and, you know, electricity generation stations. And I, I just stuff that made me think, wow, this is how society works. This is how we function. And then when I got my first job, it was in Asia, I was in Hong Kong, and I was working for a venture capital company. And I got to see how business worked. But at the same time, I also saw how kind of a city state fails, you know, I learned that half of the sewage in Hong Kong goes untreated into the sea. And that's why there aren't really very many sharks there because they can't smell, they can't hunt. And you have this juxtaposition of Canadian childhood and a real fascination with the way the world works or fails. And then an awareness that if you're in a business context, you can pretty much do whatever you want as long as you make enough money to not have to ask anyone's permission. Then I came to the UK And when I first came here, I was as obsessed as ever with waste. So I went to the sewers. I went to the British Library to try and get to grips with what waste here is like, because at that time you couldn't Google anything. There was two moments. And one was at the British Library when someone handed me a report about the 100 million tons of waste that went to British landfill that year, which is about 2004. So I thought, well, that's an impossible figure. And then I started this pilgrimage of various landfill sites. And that's kind of when I put my foot down because, you know, I saw this piles and piles of beautiful material and truck after truck after truck of something interesting coming in and knew that somewhere I was going to dive in and grab a hold of something. And then I saw a fire hose and that was the moment that really changed my life, I suppose, because the fire hose was something I fell in love with. So beautiful and so confusing to see in that context. And that's where the real story begins, I suppose. Cressy, I've heard your origin story once or twice, and it's just such a brilliant adventure. The idea of this tiny child and these huge kind of bits of landfill and these different people and signals and signs and the things you tried. And I wonder what you reflect on it now. You know, here we are at this kind of great big inflection point, not least the kind of crisis outside, but kind of the age we're at. You've built this very successful internationally recognized business. And I've got this kind of feeling, as partly because I'm getting old, I think, that it's not so much a matter of kind of who you are becoming. It's a matter of uncovering the layers to find out who you've always been. And I wonder if you've got any deeper reflections now as you look back, you know, as you've discovered more about yourself. Were there more subconscious drivers to this about like the injustice or this, you know, kind of like talismanic force of the waste and then the fire hose that you understand about yourself now that you can reflect back that you can see were still there? Or is it still those kind of principal engagements or how it looked on face value as you tell the story so brilliantly? No, I think you definitely look back and you can see the connection points. And I actually sort of think of my time now in decades, you know, your teenagers years are sort of a hormonal mess. Your 20s for me is you're trying to really figure out who you are. Your 30s, you're trying to become good at who you are because you've worked it out. And now I'm 43. I'm in what I call the impact decade because I know who I am. I know how to do what I want to do. And I'm just delivering now. And I can really see that as a continuum. And I can see that the hose was kind of a gift because 
it allowed me to explore all the things I've always wanted to explore in life. It gave me the reason to start a business. It gave me the reason to start a social enterprise that I suppose gave Elvis and I this wonderful platform where we can demand of others what we expect from ourselves. So I don't have to go out and say, well, you shouldn't be doing this or you shouldn't be running your business that way or, you know, why can't you be carbon neutral? I can say, well, look, I'm doing it. It's no big deal. Step up. I love the name of the Impact Decade. Just quickly, do you have a sense what the next decade is called? Yeah, because I met someone who I really feel is, you know, a mentor to me and she's in her 50s. And she's like, yeah, your 50s is the insanity decade because you, she feels like, like I felt now. And she sort of says that she can exponentially achieve that in her 50s. I really actively look forward to getting older because I'm maybe a bit more interesting. There's a lot of wonderful people trying to achieve amazing things that I have connections and touches into, you know, their world and what they're trying to achieve. And I feel like I could be a part of that and foster all of that moving through age is kind of a, you know, it's a real privilege rather than a burden. Can I just wind it back a little bit to going back a few decades though, because something that comes up all the time when we talk to individuals and organizations about being pirate is when we talk about breaking rules, very often they'll say, you know, this idea of breaking rules needs to happen a lot earlier. It needs to be when people are younger, they need to be more educated about challenging what is in order to continue or to go into a career or a pathway that will change things and maybe when you get to your 20s that quite often adulthood kicks in and pressures and responsibilities to conform become really quite burdensome and I think that's you know a challenge a lot of young people go through but you've managed to stay on the path and I I wondered about the landfill visits because another thing we always say is go to unexpected places to find inspiration there's something about being close to the problem and the proximity of it on a sort of moral and emotional level somehow. And I wondered if, what kind of advice would you give to younger people who are maybe struggling to stay on the path towards a kind of practical idealism and really challenging things? That's a great meaty question in there. The first thing that you have to learn is to learn how to learn and to foster a lifelong curiosity in all the problems that exist in the world. When people say that they're bored, I find that entirely confusing because how can you be bored when there's so much stuff that has to be done and it's so obvious that it has to be done? I mean, even if I look out the window, we've got an algal bloom in the mill pond because I know somebody's using too many pesticides or herbicides nearby and I've got to track that farmer down and have a word. So you can't ever stop being curious and stop learning. What I got out of, let's say, an amazing Canadian education and university, etc., was that I learned how to learn. I learned how to digest information relatively quickly and then have my own thoughts about it. And I suppose that's because my parents encouraged that, the system I was educated in encouraged that. I was never told, well, this is the way it is and that's it and nothing can be done about it. I was told, well, this is the way things are now. What do you think could be done to improve on that? That's true, not just of, let's say, you know, I studied politics at university and You can look at ancient Grecian politics or you could look at what was happening in Chinese nuclear politics, but you can question it and have an idea about what's wrong with it and why it might be better and who the stakeholders are and how you could change their minds and how you could galvanize support for a new system. Why I suppose I left politics is because that kind of brokering takes much too long. And maybe why I'm more pirate is because I like to see 
a challenge and then I like to understand it, bring it home. You know, the fire hose, we brought it into our flat share in Brixton, much to the chagrin of all of our housemates. And we lived with it. And I became an expert in what fire hose is, who generates it as waste, why it gets wasted, what its properties are, what its future potential is. But yeah, for young people, I would encourage you to be curious. I would also encourage you to question things and do your research and understand why it doesn't have to be the way that it is and how to spot failure. Because you can look at the UK, you can arrive here and think, wow, this is a beautiful airport. And you can go to a cash machine, you can put your card in and money will come out. There's public loos that are usable. There's roads, there's all this infrastructure. But then you can start to chip away and look behind the veneer and you can see 100 million tons piling up in landfill sites. You know that basically that's just us lifting up the carpet and shoving our problem under the rug. And then that that's a deep issue that needs somebody to unpick it and untangle it and understand it and cherish it. I always encourage young people to don't walk down the high street, walk down the back alley. Don't go to the usual places. Go to where your nose leads you. Find out what fascinates you and always stay curious and always ask why and always think in the back of your mind, why not? I'm working on an R&D project right now to do with lignin and leather waste. There's a big Norwegian company that creates lignin. There's a big Finnish company because it's a byproduct of the pulp and paper industry. And you just call these companies and you ask, what do you do with it? How does it work? And then in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, yeah, but we could use that for some other purpose. We could use it for this. We could use it for that. And, you know, I convinced all these people to just send me loads of lignin. And Elvis laughs because we had lots of lignin <laughs> arrived this week in its various formats. And next week we're going to play. I just think that you can be curious and you can play throughout your life. It doesn't have to be restricted to being young, for sure. Can I push you on that, though? Because I couldn't think of a more perfect answer that I would agree with more. And I'm going to ask because there's something you said earlier on that I'd like to link back to. I think there is a relationship between curiosity and courage. And even, you know, you extend the metaphor, going down the back alley, they're simple things for someone who has that kind of bravery instilled in them or has had enough adversity to, for bravery to become normalized, perhaps. But one of the issues facing young people, other than an inadequate education system, which doesn't provide a set of tools to learn how to love learning, is a rampant sense of anxiety that's driven by so many other complexities. That's not the, the kind of point of the question. But sitting at the core of anxiety, how I would phrase, and certainly I know my team at Liberty would phrase, the next wave of, kind of epidemic facing people is a crisis of identity. Because without identity, you're more prone to anxiety. And then things like curiosity feel like they're a long way away. Certainly the courage needed to back it up, to even just do some of the small examples that you've given. And I'm going to ask you, because a moment ago, when you were talking about arriving in the generation of impact, you said with such cleanness and clarity that just made me pleased for you, that you said, I know who I am now. And like you've arrived at this place of certainty and clarity around identity. And of course, there's a lifetime difference there. But to balance that same advice, to foster a love of learning and have the sense of curiosity, those young people who like the sound of that, but perhaps know that they also struggle with identity, anxiety, or, or the courage to follow that through, what have you learned along the way that fosters that, that could sit alongside it? Where is it you draw that kind of energy from? Maybe let's trade the word courage for one of two other words. On one hand, you could say, let's trade it for luck. I grew up in the 80s in Canada when it just had a ridiculous budget because it was pillaging its natural resources and massively overfunding education. And I had two wonderful parents who really just encouraged us to try everything and do anything that we wanted. And 
you know, when I was 16 years old, I got a scholarship to finish high school in Hong Kong and they didn't say, oh, that's a long way to go on your own. They were like, this is great. See you later. I was lucky in a lot of cases. You know, I, I'm not a female entrepreneur that was born in Afghanistan under the Taliban. So you, you have to say there's definitely some serious amount of luck there. And then the other word I would also like to substitute in there is debt. I'm an incredibly optimistic, forward-thinking and looking person, but I do feel every morning I wake up with a profound sense of debt and debt that I'll never repay. I often give people this story of the moose when I was camping. I don't remember, maybe I was six or seven years old. I was young and I was walking about three or four paces ahead of my dad near Jasper, which is sort of in the Rockies, about a couple of hours outside of Edmonton or Calgary. And suddenly my dad just put his hands on my shoulders and he pulled me back towards him. And on one side of the path in front of us was a baby moose. And on the other side of the path was the mother moose. So if I'd carried on walking, I could have been crushed because, you know, isn't anything that a mother moose wouldn't do to maintain sight line with her baby. But that was the most beautiful thing that I've ever seen. It's a vision that's etched in my brain and it's the wonder of the natural world. And I think of all of that, that my child has summed up in that time. And I can never repay that debt, ever. Doesn't matter what I do. And I think because I feel like the debt is so big, one, even if I do a little bit to make the world better, it's important. But also it's kind of liberating too, because it's not a debt I can repay. It's just something I have to be aware of and allow it to you know, spur me on, push me on. Yeah, I love that image of the moose. I think that's what I was searching for before, you know, this clear moment that, as you say, is etched onto your brain and gives you a real sense of meaning about what you're doing. But I wanted to move on anyway and talk a little bit actually about collaboration, because I think it's an easier thing to be a one-man band or a two-man band with a real sense of purpose and vision. But then obviously you need help to grow it. And when your team expands, staying true to that vision can be quite hard. And Elvis and Cressy breaks loads of rules, not just reframing the idea of luxury by using waste materials, but also in the way that you're challenging both the retail and the fashion industry. You know, you don't obey any of the usual rules like having seasons or doing discounts, you know, because you avoid overstocking. And that's a really different approach to setting up a fashion or retail business. So what I'm wondering is how do you make those kinds of decisions as a team about where the bar is set in terms of ethics and sustainability? I mean, I know that you're a B Corp, but you've been doing this a long time. B Corp was set up quite recently and you've been doing this since before that. So do you have differences of opinion amongst the team or is everyone generally on board? Do you just recruit people with the very same high standards? And do you ever have conflict about where to set your bar? This is a great question because obviously we work with young apprentices that come to us at the age of 16, you know, after having left school and not really seeing secondary education as as having any value for them and and actually maybe they haven't been well valued within their community so do they come to us with pre-formed values around the environment no not necessarily and then we're also collaborating with big you know FTSE mm. 100 businesses like Burberry and do they have pre-formed values about the environment sort of but are they as pure as ours definitely not so I don't think I've ever set a bar for us there is no final limit where you can set the bar because there will never be an entirely perfect company. And as soon as we find out that we're doing something that we're unhappy with, we change it. 
I remember when there was all this debate about plastic, I knew we didn't have any plastic in the business, not really, we weren't buying any in. But I went downstairs to the workshop floor to the guys and I said, what plastic is still here? What plastic do we have? And I said, well, we've got three days to get rid of it. And within three days, we had solutions for everything. And that was it. Whereas I talked to some companies and they have a phase out plan for plastic for the next five years. And I think, well, what's wrong with you? I've got some unbelievable 16, 17, 18-year-old fresh school leavers who came up with all the solutions at no extra cost in about five minutes. And then they implemented it themselves. So I think collaboration is interesting and involving a team is interesting. You don't always get the answer that you're expecting. And it's hard for me because maybe the reason I didn't stay on the political path is because I realized that, you know, at my core, I'm more of a dictator type person and I don't really like dictatorships. You know, I believe in democracy, but in the business, we talk about the road that we're on and we talk about where we want to go. And I'm always pushing the boundary. And if it means sometimes people are slightly confused, I guess I just send them back to the company handbook, which is, I think, For the first nine years of the business, the company handbook said, if you litter, you're fired. And that was it. There was only one sentence in it. And that was the value I really wanted people to get behind is that we are an anti-waste company. We don't think waste should exist. So if you litter, you've basically broken the only code that I can't abide by. And we'd have to move on from there. I do find collaboration hard, particularly with big organizations that are slow moving, who have all the resources to change overnight but also all the excuses why they shouldn't do that. Standards is one of those things. What matters is measured and all the various other kind of cliches that sit around it. And yet there's this increasing feeling that there's such a lot of bollocks around that too. And you've just given a very good example of, you call it collaboration or you could call it being quite unreasonable. But nonetheless, three days later, you got the results that you needed. And so Mm. one set is to talk about the standards and B cause and other positives. But you've used some really interesting words. In reflection to my introduction, you described yourself as stubborn. You talked about debt being the kind of form of motivation, anti-waste rather than sustainability and recycling, and even, and I know, partially joking, dictatorship. There's a really interesting duality like to this, this incredibly positive, uplifting story, and yet you're drawing on all these things that would be viewed as darker elements, but as you are with the physical manifestation of your work, turning those into useful sources. So what are the dark sides of Cressy and, and how do you turn them around? We've already begun with stubbornness. What else is there? One of the ones that Elvis loves to say is that I often, I listen to reply rather than to understand. So I'm always just ready for a debate. I'm ready to fight something out. I think that's not great. And I'm learning to, <laughs> I'm learning to listen a little bit more. So there's a bit of a, of a dark one there. Although let's say in my overall mission to end the idea of waste, which sounds really single-minded, actually I can get distracted quite easily because now the company's in the position that it's in. We get sent lots of interesting wastes all the time. And typically what I do now, you know, after having learned how distracted I can be is that I only open a new box of waste on a Friday because that means that I'll spend the weekend trying to get to grips with it, i.e. my own time, rather than company time when I need to be more focused on driving forward the specific mission of the company. Is there some ego in it? Maybe when we're in this, some of these luxury sessions, because you know, I've been to some of the World Economic Forum things with luxury and have met and interacted with some of the leaders in the industry. But I'm perfectly happy to just say, guys, this is a failure. This isn't creative. This is destructive. For years, you have told me that I'm not luxury because you define luxury. Well, no, I'm not going to let you have that 
anymore. I'm not going to let you define that anymore because I don't care if you have 2 billion in turnover. It doesn't earn you the right to celebrate failure. Is that ego or is, I don't know if maybe it is. So that could be some dark side too. But I do remember actually the last time we chatted about pirates, I did some research into this amazing female Chinese pirate who's basically like the most powerful person in all of China for ages. And she just did wonderful things for lots and lots of people. <laughs> and I just thought, yeah, she's my kind of pirate. She just didn't take any crap. She just kept moving forward and she had a mission. And her mission often involved creating really wonderful, well-paid jobs. And, you know, that's what we do here. Yeah, the thing that I like about pirates is that a bit of ego is allowed, or at least they don't pretend it doesn't exist, just that we need to keep it in check. I think, yeah, pirates manage to honour the individual person and all their needs and desires, but not let that trump the concept of a crew or the collective. Yeah, I like that pirate leadership is just a little bit more honest in that respect. But actually, what I'm really curious to know from you, Cressy, is what you've, this weird COVID year we've just undergone, Because to me, it seems like there's a really clear relationship between a circular economy and a general slowing down of everything, of life, of people. And obviously, we've seen that this year with these great sort of pauses in the economy, but also in our personal lives too. So is there anything that you've really seen across this year that struck you as interesting in relation to your industry or any particular kind of opportunities that you've seen arise as a result of COVID? I do love how it's made certainly our industry think. You know, I've been on lots of calls with the British Fashion Council and various different groups and networks within fashion and luxury. You know, some of them are just terrified because, you know, we've got everything from companies who've cancelled orders and completely abandoned their supply chains who are behaving absolutely abominably to companies that have really stepped up and who've decided to get involved in making PPE if they could and donating to vaccine funds and making sure that all of their teams were safe. And then you have a small business like ours that really always thought we were resilient. And then, wow, did we discover how resilient we were because we are vertically integrated. We don't outsource production. We produce everything ourselves, except for things like zippers and hardware. But I'll tell you about my hardware plan in a minute. And we just found that because we were so connected to everything and that there wasn't this long complicated supply chain that actually we could adjust to everyone's individual needs really, really quickly. And we could make everything work for them really, really quickly, which meant that we could keep going. And that actually gave Elvis and I some free time to go for some long walks and go, well, always in a crisis, you have to think about what is the most exciting thing you could possibly do. And for us, Typically, we look at maybe one big R&D project a year. And within this pandemic, we have hired two people to do two R&D projects and we're pushing ahead now with the third. So I think, yes, it's really interesting because it gives you time to reflect. But as long as that reflection leads to action, as long as you immediately go, okay, this is what I think about it. This is what I'm going to try as a result. Because if we just pause and we just have a lot of existential angst, it's going to be very, very easy for big marketing campaigns to just gaslight us into overconsumption again. I've been trying to think of the word when we were talking about the dark side of you, and that explanation has just brought it to me. And I've never used this word as a compliment before, but you are belligerent. <laughs> and it's got a negative connotation, hasn't it? But, you know, I wouldn't, yeah. Uh, yeah. I wouldn't say it to you. But the definition of it is a person who enjoys a fight. Is there a fight you're scared of? 
I've always wanted to do my own hardware. So this is the D rings, then the rivets and all of the metal stuff that goes into luxury buckles, things like that. And one of the reasons is because there's kind of this monopoly on luxury hardware that is run by a couple of Italian companies. So it slightly bothers me that we all have to buy from these certain companies. Other reason to do it is that everything we try and do has multiple positive objectives. So I'm not just interested in making any old hardware. I'm like, well, how much influence can we have on the wider world by making hardware in a different way? So I started doing this casual research a few years ago to look at whether or not we could do waste metal to 3D printed metal. And there was an American technology that said they could do it. So i.e. you could put waste metal in one end of a hopper and 3D print finished pieces out the other end. But then I called every professor who would answer his phone in the UK that had anything to do with metallurgy. And they all said, well, that's 10 years away and it's going to cost 300,000 pounds. And I don't want to wait 10 years and I don't want to spend 300,000 pounds on something I think everybody should be able to do. So I found this grant scheme that was being launched by the London College of the Arts, UCL. UCL? Oh, this UL. is terrible because they're going to be... UL, there you go. Yeah. They all have so many different acronyms. Um, so UAL is called the BFTT SME scheme, where they find a business like ours that has a relatively academic challenge, and then they find you the academic partner to help you chase that challenge through. And what I proposed for this grant was that we could invent an entirely renewably powered microforge so that we could collect aluminum cans off of the roadside and turn those into buckles. And the reason I want to collect the aluminum cans off of the roadside is that in the UK, every year we litter 16 million of them into our public spaces. And if you add in the glass containers, it's about 32 million. And all of those drinks containers result in the deaths of 4 million small mammals a year because they're getting killed by cars as they run across the road to get the sugar or they get stuck in the can and they can't get out. So we're murdering small mammals because we're littering. Everything about that ticks me off. So I thought if we can find a way to revalue this aluminium by putting it into a machine that is only powered by the sun and turning it into hardware, then we're going to just change the landscape for hardware. So that's a fight that I'm currently sort of knee deep in. And I think the really exciting thing is that we've got this amazing academic team at Queen Mary University and we know that this machine, and we're developing in a completely open source way, we're designing it in the public, we've got engineers from all over the world that are helping us, all of the output is going to be shared, we're not trying to patent it, we're not trying to profit from it, but we know that if we can get to this supreme level of being able to melt waste aluminium, as you call it here, which is 660 degrees C, we know how many other exciting things we'll be able to achieve as we reach that temperature. You can boil water at 100 degrees, which means that you create a distributed heating system and change the landscape of the gas boiler forever. We know that you could melt plastic down and start recycling plastic at the local level. And this all plays into all of these big global themes about decentralizing manufacturing and energy supply. And actually, you know, just challenging all of the ideas about what efficiency means and how resource should really only flow in a few specific directions. And it is a fight because when we started this idea, I thought just everyone's going to love this. It's going to be wonderful. And then I got calls from the Aluminium Association saying, we need those cans. You can't have those cans. And I was like, really? The 16 million cans that are currently in the ditches? If you needed them so badly, you would have collected them by now. <laughs> There's going to be a fight. But at the same time, because we're giving it away and we're empowering so many young engineers and technology buffs all over the world to take manufacturing by the scruff of the neck and own it themselves, 
I think it's a fight that we'll win because I'm not the only captain. I'm not the soldier. I'm not anything. I'm just the person who's willing to succeed or fail in the public domain. It's so interesting listening to you because it's so obvious how much challenge compounds over time that once you've proved you can do one thing, you know, getting rid of waste fire hoses, you know it's possible and you know you can do it again and again and, and, and the fight sort of builds. I quite like a fight too, but <laughs> maybe I'd frame it more as playing devil's advocate because I, you know, I did talk to a lot of people who maybe, you know, at the beginning of their journey to being a pirate you know, still quite afraid of that first challenge and the sense of failure and the sense of rejection, particularly if you're doing it not as an entrepreneur, but in in a company, you must have some moments when it doesn't quite work out or you're, you're not kind of getting where you want to. Is there anything you go to to kind of steal yourself back up or maybe cope with the failure? I fail spectacularly all the time. And I think that's because I'm trying new things all the time. So the more new things you try, the more likely you are to experience failure and the more likely you are to develop the tools to get over it. I remember when I was at university, actually, this wasn't necessarily a failure, but we were broken into right near the end of my final year. For the first time in my life, I actually was backing up my work on a you know a hard disk, which won't make sense to anyone because we backed up in the cloud now. There was no cloud. But someone broke in and they took my laptop with my backup disk sort of in. (laughs) So I lost everything. And I remember going to my professor and saying, this is really bad. Can I have an extension? Because my whole thesis was there and it was due about a week and a half from then. And he said, no, you can't. You're just going to have to get it done. And he said, I suggest you drink a whiskey with me now and then go home and crack on with it. And that's kind of the approach that I've taken. Like you're allowed to wallow for about 30 seconds, but then you have to pick up your shovel again or get back up on the horse. I hope people look at what we've done and they think, oh, well, they totally failed to build a luxury empire. Because if you think of how all big luxury businesses, they're all empires and they're empires with brands and sub-brands, and they're huge, big, powerful companies. But if you actually understand the problem that the world faces, which is that we've got nine years to deal with climate change or it's all over, you can't achieve that by building an empire. That's the problem that a lot of people are facing at the moment of trying to understand the measure of success of a new paradigm through the lens of an old one and not quite knowing where we need to meet people where they are or drag them into a future that definitely comes up a lot. However, I guess I sort of want to bring up an elephant in the room that, or maybe it's not a failure, but I wouldn't look at your business and think you should build an empire in any way. It's really, really clear the way that you've done it and made it ethically sound, giving to charity, transforming all aspects of the business so that they fit the ethos of no waste. But the sort of elephant for me is that the products themselves aren't really affordable to most people. Is that something that is just unfortunately the only way to stay financially sustainable at this point and what would it take to make more kind of middle range products circular as well have you seen anyone doing that really well or is that something you want to do this depends on what you're trying to make so we make high quality handcrafted goods and our pricing actually in that market is much less than our competition Although, yes, there's no question that the goods are expensive. I will never apologize for the price of them because we Mm. create really, really well-paid employment in Mm. order to create those goods. So, no, I I could never be that entrepreneur that was like, yeah, well, if I just open up a factory in this labor market where no one really cares about these people and you can pay them 
these horrible wages and basically be engaged in modern slavery. I'm not that person. And unfortunately, most of the British high street is. And we need to accept that. Food has never been as cheap as it is. Fashion has never been as cheap as it is. And both of those cheapnesses are at the expense of people elsewhere and the environment itself. We're degrading our planet and we're exploiting its people and all for this you know, momentary cheapness or shareholder gains. It's pretty disgusting when you really, really strip it bare. But can we make it affordable, circularity? Absolutely we can, because the natural system in which we exist is a circular one. We have to look at the natural world and respond to the fact that we do not control it. We are a species that exists within it and as a part of it. And that our role isn't really as a steward, because you could never argue that we were a steward because we've been doing such a terrible job of it. What we have to see is that we have to exist within the natural system. And and there's all kinds of wonderful circular things that you can do that are extremely cost effective. You know, right now, I can't Mm -hmm. wait until I can start collecting sewage. You know, I used to complain about the sewage in Hong Kong. Then I discovered that in my amazing Canada on Vancouver Island, basically, the sewage from Victoria is just in a big pipe that gets sent out to sea. And there's a very limited amount of filtration there. And I want to park a bunch of boats out there and start cleaning that up because actually we should all be using composting toilets now because sewage is essentially a couple of hours of anaerobic digestion away from being topsoil. We have no right to put it into the sea. And that can be achieved actually in a more cost-effective way than the sewage systems that we currently deploy. So there's a lot of things that we can do which are cost-effective, but the cost of the goods that Elvis and Cressy makes, no, we can't make them cheaper than we do because we'd be asking people to be paid less and that would be inappropriate. So what I would you know, argue is that actually everyone should be paid more and the food that we eat should be appropriately priced to value the lives of the farmer, the lives of the animals, the natural system that is the only home that we have. You've opened up so many important boxes (laughs) there. And kind of at the core of it is this, you represent such an interesting paradox because you've two or three times invoked ideas of grandchildren and grandparents. And I've been challenging the notion of Maslow's hierarchy of needs loads of times about this idea of human beings that we kind of strive to a certain point before we kind of see ourselves in connection to everything. And I learned a few weeks ago that Maslow learned this by studying, he's an anthropologist, and he studied the Blackfoot tribe. And what he learned from them was that they planned everything seven generations into the future. So whatever action you were doing, you should be considering the consequence for your great, 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 great grandchildren. This idea that the short-termism is what's so dangerous, but we live in a very short-term world. And to start moving to long-term thinking in a short-term world is an even bigger stretch than the one we've just gone through with COVID-19. And yet here you are, because you could say you represent consumer items, luxury goods, to continue on the point that, that Alex was making, expensive luxury goods, you know, the representation of, or manifestation of non-necessary items. And yet you know And to hear you just say, all I can think of is, you know, how do we get more power behind you? And how do you reconcile it? But how do you get others to reconcile it? Like, that's such a simple but big mindset shift you're describing. I think you can only do it in increments because the first challenge we looked at was this beautiful fire hose. If we didn't save it, it was going to landfill. It didn't have a second life. And that seemed ridiculous. 
particularly when we thought if we can take it and we can make anything useful out of it at all, we will be able to have rescued the fire hose. But also, you know, we agreed on day one when we met the firefighters charity that we were going to give them half of any proceeds. So we had this idea if we rescue the fire hose and if we make any money, half of it's going to firefighters. And that's just all wonderful and good. And it makes you feel great. That whole system and circle of goodness, it makes you feel great. So then you want to achieve that with more and more materials. And I guess when I look at the fashion world and at the luxury world, I just don't see a reason why, as an industry, should be allowed to use primary resources. If you think about everything, everything we eat, everything we drink, every material good that we have, it all comes from the earth. None of it has come from the sky. None of it has come from, from Mars. And I don't think fashion should get the first shot at beautiful, wonderful materials. That should be food and and water, and not just food and water for people, but for plants and animals and long-term biodiversity. So if we always thought, if we can show that you can have a company that uses virtually entirely waste to make really beautiful things, then there's no excuse for people to say that they need to use virgin cotton or brand new PVC or you know oil and gas. If we can run on renewable energy, why can't they? You know, obviously, nobody lives an entire life without compromise. That doesn't happen, you know. When we're talking about core values, no, we don't compromise those. This is a really good example. So the guys at Queen Mary University that we're working with on the forge, the solar Mm. forge, the idea behind it is that it's totally open source. We share everything. The design of the machine we come up with has to be safe. And I want it to be able to be made anywhere in the world with locally available materials for less than $500. Because if we design this really expensive machine that's only available to people in the West, then we haven't really solved a lot of problems for anyone else. And I remember Haishui, who's sort of the lead academic on it, he just went quiet for about half an hour when I was talking about these challenges that I wanted to solve. And then he said later, he said, Cressy, is it a failure if it's $700? (laughs) And I was like, no, $700 is totally fine. But $10,000 is a failure. And in order to get close to $500, you know, we have to set that goal somewhere. Yeah, core values I would never, ever, ever compromise on. I would never stay quiet when I thought something had to be said. And that's often actually the feedback that I get is that, you know, I'm an advisor to some companies or in these, these kinds of roles now. And often what I get told, maybe not in the room at the time, when people just look at me with a frustrated face, but afterwards it's always like, yeah, I really appreciate your candor. Somebody had to say that. I really respect the place that you've arrived at. And particularly, as you said earlier on, you know, knowing that the mission is longer than your own lifespan, I think that's something that very few of us you kind of get your head around you know this idea that you'll begin something that goes on for longer than you and i suppose can i ask it another way and this it's up to you whether you want to answer or not as your ambitions grow based on this kind of compounding belligerence and the the desire for a fight and so now you can see bigger challenges than you would have before you're relishing a fight that you know you're gonna have do you think there is limitations of elvis and cressy could elvis and cressy allow you to go and get your hands on sewage or is there another there's less of an exit strategy but more just an evolution strategy and we're just trying to turn him into a multiple founder like you (laughs) so with sewage if i can capture the fluid element in a way that i want it to i'm pretty convinced i could turn it into a high-end perfume that people would pay a bomb for and then we could have this wider conversation (laughs) about water (laughs) but not everything that we do can be turned into a luxury product so i can definitely see ways that we would work 
which wouldn't be necessarily with Elvis Agresi. You know, I mean, some of the companies that I'm an advisor to have nothing to do with luxury, but they're still always in the same kind of mission around waste reduction or fighting climate change, things like that. So yeah, I can see that there's lots of things that I want to be involved with and not all of them make sense within the sphere of Elvis and Cressy, but that's okay because I love the business and I love the platform it gives us and I love the challenges that we can explore through its particular voice. But I also think that I can bring a lot more energy back to the business if I'm allowed to go and play in other ponds and swim in other streams. I really feel so inspired by listening to all of this. It's oddly just re-clarifies in a way what our mission is, supporting people to be a bit more like you in a way, if that doesn't sound patronizing to other people, because obviously everybody's unique and has a unique mission, but just hearing the level of partly belligerence, but clarity and toughness around the scale of the problem and, and not being afraid to take it on is just really, really energizing and wonderful to hear. So thank you for talking through that. No, no. I got a lot of clarity from the book as well because I would never have described myself as a pirate. But the first time that, Sam, that I'm trying to think where we were, I think it was at Red Bull and you were talking about your theories on piracy. And I was like, this is actually a really interesting way at breaking the system down because mutiny is a really powerful term. And we all know that we need systemic change, but systemic change doesn't sound very exciting, whereas mutiny sounds really exciting. I think that's the whole point, is that a lot of people just need permission to try something else. And even if they're only going to try that on the weekend or as a hobby, we need to unlock that energy somehow. And I think that the piracy metaphor is going to unlock that for, well, all the people it's already unlocked it for, but loads more people because it's just such powerful terminology that relates to a really fun time in most of our childhood when we you know first watched the goonies or whatever when i was coming up with how i was going to redefine it and i remember yeah we, it was at red bull on a social enterprise day and i think we went and had social enterprise drinks at that fire station the social enterprise the brigade, yeah so committed to the social enterprise cause we are but you've said something a few times today which alex and i have reflected that Pirates has become a, a proxy for permission, and you've just seen straight that immediately. But you've also said play several times. You talked about you have to open the box of, of waste on a Friday so that you can play. You just spoke there to the spirit of fun, and you did so earlier on. And I think that's really crucial to all of this, as much as the earlier conversation around curiosity, you know, knowing that that luck you spoke about earlier on being given the space to play. And Einstein says, you know, it's the best word for research is play. And there's something in that. It's probably the thing I've taken most today that I haven't heard you make such an important message of before and that you seem to have built it in and rather than call it R&D or, or anything else, you know, you're very emphatically referring it to as play. And I, I'm grateful for that reminder. Kids are more creative than adults and it's because they play more and they laugh more and they giggle more and yeah, they get lost more and they don't care if they get dirty and skin their knees and climb trees and I don't see why that stops at a certain age. I don't comb my hair very often. <laughs> I don't dress up in fancy clothes. And that's because most days I know I'm going to get dirty at some point. So I think that's quite a fun way to live. That's it, exactly. It's about stretching your imagination and finding a way to have a bigger vision about what it could look like. And that's definitely very pirate off the edges of the map. 
we've somewhat run out of time. I just want to thank you so much for talking about your adventures in reclaiming waste and being our first podcast guest. Yay. And it's just a pleasure to, to be reconnected. And isn't it funny the way the universe works? I've just got um, a message from FedEx that they're about to deliver my Elvis and Cressy handbag. Not funny, <laughs> but, but perfect really? timing. And may, may I say <laughs> incredibly swift delivery. Like, it's very impressive. Yeah. Only, only on at the weekend. So um, it's just a joy. It's just a joy. You know, it talks about inspiration and energy that you've, you've always given on our intermittent uh, overlapping adventures. And this is just a demonstration of that. And I am left with this thought about the amazing work that you're doing and this inspiring company and this kind of duality of how the hell do we get your hands on the what next at the same time? How do we multiply the power of, of you, that curiosity that, you know, maybe not, I'll, I'll totally stand corrected on, on debt and luck, but this ability that you have to reframe things in other people's minds and then prove it is just profound. And whilst you have the energy that you've got and the willingness you've got, I'd just love to see you get your hands on and as much of it as you can. And if we, us, me, our network or anything else can support in any way, then you have a whole crew of pirates to back you up if you ever need us. That's amazing. I always need as much help as I can get in my hoarding. <laughs> Where's best to sort of find out more? Should we point people to your website? You can point people to the website. All of our social handles are at Elvis and Cressy. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm certainly, my email address is on the website. I'm quite accessible and I love random emails and random boxes of garbage. And when the pandemic is over, you know, we have a completely open and transparent workshop and we love having guests here. So I can't wait until we can start welcoming people back because certainly that's one of the most amazing things that we do is just see people arrive here and be confronted with stacks of old fire hose and find out what we do to make it wonderful. So I think they can find us everywhere, Google Maps, everywhere. Thanks, Chrissy. You're amazing. Thanks, guys. Thank you for tuning in today. Our hope with this podcast is that each time it might inspire a few more people to realise that the way things are is not the way they have to be, and that maybe it's time for you to step up and take that leap into the unknown. If you like what you heard, then please consider subscribing to the podcast on the platform of your choice. Even better, share this with a friend, leave a review, let us know who you'd like us to interview next, or of course, just tell us how you're being more pirate. We are first and foremost a community, so we'd really love to hear from you. Go to at Be More Pirate on Instagram or Twitter, or visit bemorepirate.com. See you next time.